0: Lock your doors. Close the blinds. Change your passwords. This is the Dry Cleaner Cast. Welcome to the Dry Cleaner Cast, a podcast that takes a new look at the war on terror, its legacy, and espionage in the 21st century. This podcast is written, edited, and presented by Chris Carr.
1: The Dry Cleaner Cast is a series of podcasts that look at terrorism and espionage in the 21st century. The podcast is a companion to my short film, The Dry Cleaner. We hope by helping people further understand the complexity and sensitivity of the issues that surround terrorism, we can be a part of the necessary debate that will help defeat terrorism in the near future. Today I'm on location at King's College, London, and I'm joined by Shiraz Mayer who is a senior research fellow at the International Centre for the Study of Radicalisation at King's College. He is also author of the book Salafi Jihadism, The History of an Idea. And today we will be discussing Salafi Jihadism.
0: Opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the filmmakers and sponsors of the film, The Dry Cleaner.
2: So Shiraz, welcome to The Dry Cleaner cast. Thank you. Um,
1: Can you just tell us a little bit about yourself?
2: Yeah, I'm a deputy director of the International Center for the Study of Radicalization. And I've been working at King's now for about six years, working uh, a lot on jihadist movements and jihadist groups. But uh, my own particular research interests are much more closely related to the ideology and to some of the theological debates that these groups have been having over time. And so that's what I've really been focusing in on
1: yeah excellent can you just tell us a little bit about the international center for the study of
2: radicalization and the work that you do there so we were set up uh, originally in 2008 as a sort of response to the uh, 7-7 terrorist attacks there was a, a feeling within the college that there had to be an independent center that was looking at these issues in an objective way and in an evidence-led way, because a lot of the stuff you see with terrorism studies and with a lot of popular commentaries based on anecdotal stuff, it's not always particularly objective. It's usually led by the political agenda of the day. And so the college, um, quite wisely in my opinion, uh, clearly thought that they they should have a centre that looked at and worked on these issues. And um, we, we do a range of things. So I lead the work here on Syria and Iraq, but we have colleagues who look at the far right. We have colleagues working um, on movements across Europe. We have uh, uh, others looking at stuff in uh, sub-Saharan Africa or the Horn of Africa. So we're trying to increase uh, our global uh, reach, but clearly the confidence here in Syria and Iraq is dominating what we're doing right now.
1: You've written a fantastic book called Salafi Jihadism, The History of an Idea.
2: Can you tell us what it's about and what inspired you to write it? Well, in terms of what the book is about, it was really the fact that we saw the rise of all these different groups. So we had al-Qaeda and everyone talked about al-Qaeda. But then you have a group called ISIS or Islamic State that comes later. You have groups like Boko Haram and al-Shabaab and all these different things coming up. And, you know, I thought there was a need to really try and explain their ideas and the theological debate that these movements had had from the perspective of the ideologues uh, to get them to where they are today. Um, and so that, in a nutshell, is what the book aims to do. It sort of it's a history of ideas. So it's it's not a history where you're saying in 1993 Bin Laden was here and he met with this guy and they agreed X. What you're saying is these events happened. Uh, for example, Saddam invading Kuwait, and the political aftermath of that is uh, uh, quite profound for for jihadists in the Middle East. And they're talking amongst themselves about what they should do. And it's those debates, the religious, theological unraveling that takes place within these guys and within their movements about how they're going to respond so um it's quite different and unique from a lot of the histories that are out there currently looking at these types of things because it treats ideas rather than the people in terms of you know i suppose the inspiration to write it to be honest i never knew i was writing this book when i started i was originally setting out to look at al-qaeda specifically as a movement and to show the ideas within that group. And as I started going into it, I said about a year into it, I realized that this isn't really about Al-Qaeda. This is about a broader thing. It's about Salafism and a particular strain of Salafism, Salafi jihadism. And that's when I thought, ah, you know, I'm onto something. Um, so I ended up having to junk a lot of the work from the first year. But... I repurposed it, and, uh, and here we are. How did you go about actually sort of researching the book? It must have been quite a, a big process. Sort of. It was quite laborious. It was, it was quite difficult. I, I, again, I wasn't always sure what I was going to be doing, but I, in the end, decided, okay, it, it has to be a thematic book, looking because the, the timeline and chronology of each of the five ideas are five ideas in the book that I say are the essential and irreducible sort of features or defining facets of this idea. And so each one, the history starts in a different point. So there's a chapter on Walaw al-Bara, which is essentially love and hate for the sake of God, um, which is really looking at developments from the 18th and 19th century onwards. It's relatively recent. Whereas in the chapter on Takfir, which is the process of excommunication, declaring other Muslims to be heretics, that really uh, takes place from almost the dawn of Islam. And so I realized I had to create, construct the book in a thematic way dealing with each idea in isolation separately and then it was really a case of going and finding all the various books uh, that had been released and and talked about uh, in relation to these things Um, and so one of the advantages of the current age I suppose that the jihadist movement of course publishes all those books online so you could go on the internet and find them so I was obviously in a phase of downloading reams of uh, uh, jihadist propaganda material off the web in order to better understand this but you know some of these com- concepts are quite complex they're quite dense um, I wouldn't say I was expert in them before I started so there were times when I was having to teach myself and learn myself about what something was and then what they had done to it and then to find a way to explain it to a Western audience as well that didn't require a huge grounding in Islam or, or Islamic theology so there are multiple challenges on the way
1: yeah no I bet um Can you tell us what is Salafism
2: and sort of where it fits into the faith of Islam? So Salafism is a a tradition within Islam, within Sunni Islam, and it's a highly regressive and literalist uh, uh, practice of Islam I would say that Salafis tend to be people you would see as being I suppose if they're walking down the street they're the most identifiably Muslim they're visibly Muslim so the women tend to wear the full face veil with just their eyes showing the men tend to wear the robe usually having it above their ankles they have long beards uh, and so on so I suppose in that sense you know the caricature image or the tabloid images here hit this sort of they're the identifiably visibly Muslim people, but really what Salafism is about what the name means is, is a longer title really is Salaf Salihin is the, uh, the pious predecessors and that refers to the first three generations of Muslims that surrounded the Prophet Muhammad so it his immediate companions, their children and the children's children and this is taken to constitute the golden age of Islam, the, the most uh, pious and authentic phase of Islam that existed and so the Salafi movement today says we want to live the lives of the Salafis Salihin, we want to live the lives of the pious predecessors so it believes in going backwards to living the life of those people to trying to uncover and revive the authenticity as it were of the practice of Islam that they had and in doing so they're very rejectionist of modernity or attempts to uh, marry Islam with, uh, with more modern or progressive interpretations. So what is Salafi jihadism, and how did that come about? So when I look at the Salafis, um, there was a, a scholar b- who wrote a book uh, several years before before I did, who actually said, you know, you can see the Salafis break into three categories, uh, and I broadly adopt his categories. Um, and these are the quietists, and that's the overwhelming number of Salafis. And really, they're concerned about themselves. Their, their, their primary concern is about getting themselves to heaven and their families to heaven, they're not really concerned with you or with society and much less so with politics. So these are the quietest, the religious ascetics really more than anything. And then you have a second slightly smaller category of which are the politicos and these people engage with the world politically um, but they don't believe in revolutionary change, they believe in organic change. Um, there aren't really political Salafis in the West Uh, it's mostly a movement you find uh, uh, within the Gulf states Saudi Arabia in particular and again they are fascinating people and there's a very good book actually all about them Um, uh, and and, and so there's a very good study done on them and and how they operate and what they do and then after that you have the jihadists which is the smallest category of the lot um, but it's clearly the one that grabs all the attention they are rejectionist They are the ones who don't believe in working with the political system or disengaging from it. They believe in radically uprooting it and overturning it fundamentally. And so I start the book by saying, look, here is Salafism as a tradition. This is what Salafism is. And then I titrate down to say, here are the different categories. And it's this last sliver that we're looking at. We're going to focus in on these guys and work them out. Do all Salafis subscribe to Salafi jihadism? No. A lot of Salafis, in fact, quietest Salafis, would say that Salafi jihadis have made uh, a number of grotesque errors. They would use the label of khawarij often against them, which is a highly loaded, pejorative term. It refers to a historical episode uh, in the early days of Islam where a community of people became renegades and rogues. They essentially broke off from the community declared themselves the only true Muslims and then fought the established community of Islam and they were um, subsequently crushed and, and overrun. So to call someone a Khawarij today uh, is very, uh, as I say, it's loaded, it's pejorative and that's the kind of language you see being used between uh, the different parties. So for most Salafis they are rejecting and opposing uh, uh, the, the Jihadi Salafis and they feel quite hard done by that. They are sort of the caricature that is defining them.
1: Mm. It kind of reminds me of, um, do you remember the film Four Lions? Yeah, yeah. Because the brother of the terrorist, I think, was a a Salafi, was he? Mm. And he was a very peaceful one, but he was the one who ended up getting arrested for being a a suspect. Exactly, yeah, Yeah,
2: exactly. It's that sort of thing. We're we're being the suspect community when it's these guys over here. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, exactly. So the Salafis are constantly, like, banging their head, really, saying, well, you know, What's going on and we're being associated with this Mm. when, when we're really not about that? Yeah,
1: so some commentators like to point to Salafism as evidence of Islam being fundamentally violent So how representative of the Islamic faith is Salafism and Salafi jihadism and how do ordinary Muslims view Salafism?
2: Well Salafism is one of the traditions within one of the branches of Islam so Salafism is practiced by Sunni Muslims and it's part of the tradition but you know there are Sufi Muslims, there are Diobandi Muslims, there are Muslims of all different kinds of backgrounds and uh, practices and so on. I think one of the difficulties for me being a Muslim myself particularly when writing this book is to avoid uh, making subjective comments and is to avoid getting into the debate. So I say quite early on in the book like I'm Going to approach this matter with dispassionate objectivity. That's the real aim here. Just to sort of stand back and say, here it is as it stands. I'm going to explain concepts to you as they've been understood by the radicals, and not to say I buy into it, it's not to say I think it's good theology or bad theology, it's just here is what they have done and interpreted of it. So I think uh, Salafis in general. Uh, some sometimes viewed with suspicion even by other Muslims because they say you're part of the problem Salafism is so uh, a hard line and uncompromising or uh, sort of unmalleable that even other Muslims feel hard done by and you do see that to some extent when uh, you have Sufi Muslims for example who are much more about revering the Prophet and having uh, a connection with the Prophet and so on if they go to Medina where obviously the Saudi state is in charge, they get told off, they may get uh, harassed by the authorities if they are wanting to practice in their own ways. So there are tensions within Islam in that sense. But, you know, uh, Salafism is, is, is part of the Islamic tradition, and I don't think any attempts to sort of uh, rule them as renegades or something are particularly helpful. It's a large part of the Islamic faith, and a large number of people think that that's the the appropriate way to understand God. Okay. And Salafi Jihadism has been described as a
1: political religion and similar to totalitarian political thinking such as Nazism, Communism and Western
2: culture. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, I think the Salafi Jihadi movement is uh, sometimes comparable to these totalitarianisms that we've seen in the past. In some senses, it operates just like a contemporary uh, fascistic uh, movement that uh, arcs towards power. prioritizes power and it licenses and unleashes all kinds of grotesque violence often against the very constituency in whose name it claims to be acting or in whose interest it claims to be acting in order to realize its its fundamental vision. So it's a hugely uh, uh, problematic uh, thing that, uh, that these groups do. But when I look at it, what makes a young man from Portsmouth or Brighton or Cardiff give up their life here and travel to... Uh, somewhere like Syria and Iraq to be part of Islamic State and to engage in all the grotesque brutalities that they've engaged in and so on. And you do see elements of this new political religion arising. Because, Without being too esoteric, and I, I kind of avoid going into too much depth about it in the book, precisely for that reason, is that there's a broader crisis of liberalism we see in the Western world today. So as we lead increasingly isolated lives we live in increasing silos in fact the whole digital world we live in reinforces those silos so to give an example when you uh, when you're on twitter you are essentially curating your own news timeline of the world that will essentially reflect your views so if you follow a particular football team and uh, that's what you're interested in you may be getting all the updates about that team um but you're not you're not reading in a rounded way in a way that you would if you uh, bought a newspaper that, in theory, covers lots of different things from around the world. So there's this broader crisis, and you see that being manifest in so many ways. I think Brexit, to an extent, could point towards some of the crisis in liberalism. The rise of Donald Trump and populist movements across Europe, AFD, Pegida, these types of things are symptomatic of this broader quest that lots of people have, for identity, belonging, a sense of trying to make sense of the world, which over the last 15 years has seemed to unravel, established orthodoxies of power have unraveled. And so people are sort of trying to work out and fit in, where do I stand in relation to all of this? And if you're a young Muslim who's grappling with these questions, you're sort of slightly more in the eye of that storm because a lot of that crisis is also coming about from your own religious and civilizational aspect. It's imploding right now in Syria and Iraq. And you have a group like IS that can offer this very powerful transformative message. I mean, in essence, what is Islamic State's message? It's make Islam great again. And and all the things that that means, the vagueness of it, but the transformative inspiration of something like that, as we see Trump do. And so these people go. Mm, Kind of gives them a sense of
1: purpose, doesn't it? Purpose,
2: Mm. power. Authority, direction, meaning, you know, all of these things are, are hugely important. So I do see Salafi jihadism as being a new political religion in that sense. It's filling this vacuum and void that exists and giving people uh, direction.
1: In your book, the um, 1990s caused a kind of key moment in political Islamic thought, uh, and I've also been told there was a boom of Salafi literature in the 90s as well. Can you tell us a bit about why that time was so crucial and how
2: it led to the birth of groups such as Al Qaeda? The 90s is a really crucial moment, and I think it gets overlooked. And that was one of the bits I was quite pleased with in the book, actually, I think I I bring the focus back to the 1990s as a transformative uh, era because we we tend to look at Afghanistan in the 1980s and say, oh, look here, were these Arab guys who went off to fight jihad in Afghanistan, and you know, at one time we thought it was a good thing, and now with the post 9/11 climate, we're like, oh, it's, it's a bit weird. And then the sort of narrative drops off to the 1990s. We're just like, well, we know bin Laden was in Sudan and then he goes back to Afghanistan. But no one's really told the story of what was happening. And so I think it's one of the most important transformative periods intellectually for the development of this movement. Because you have this group of irregular fighters who go off to Afghanistan in the 1990s, but there's no thinking behind it. There's no real vision or plan. It's just a vague notion, this is a good thing and help your Muslim brother. What really uh, becomes a pivot point is when Saddam Hussein invades Kuwait and Saudi Arabia invites the United States to come and help in the military defense of the kingdom. And given that Saudi Arabia is really one of the most important countries in terms of having Salafism as a state faith, but the Gulf more generally is really uh, the home of Salafism, all these clerics and thinkers start to have a discussion. Uh, I actually lived in Saudi Arabia at the time when this happened, so uh, I remember it quite vividly, and I remember that awakening my early political thinking, that people were saying in the mosques, well, is it acceptable from within Islam to have the United States come to this holy land and establish military bases here? We're not really comfortable with that. And for the first time you had dissent, you had open public debate that hadn't existed uh, uh, in Saudi Arabia before then. And so people were furiously writing pamphlets and books trying to justify each side of that. But you had this quite large movement emerge, the Sahwa, the Awakening, uh, who are now a large a lot of them, political Salafis, who came out in, in opposition to the government. And they weren't calling for radical revolution, but they were definitely telling the government you need to reform yourself and you need to fix yourself up and to be more islamic and bin laden was trying to position himself actually behind that for quite a while he was fortunate in the sense of course he wasn't inside arabia so domestically the government cracked down arrested all of these people and began to uh, persecute them and so they kept inviting bin laden to come back and he said no way i know what you'll do and from abroad they moved to more of a okay we you know talking to them advising them calling upon them hasn't worked we need to go from engagement to confrontation and I think that's when the path towards confrontation begins to be set. Um, And so I I kind of try and lay out uh, uh, in the book how that recalibration takes place. Excellent. yeah, the, the second Gulf War,
1: the War of 2003, is also a sort of turning point as well, isn't it? And um, one thing that was interesting, a lot of commentators sort of like to present these sort of uh, jihadi groups as sort of one cohesive force, but um, you were sort of saying that the, there were l- huge divisions that came
2: out because of the Gulf War and the global jihadi movement. There was. The Gulf War, again, uh, the second one, 2003 invasion of Iraq, was yet another really important moment uh, in terms of... Th- of doing this, I mean, one of the interesting things when I look at it is when you think about Islamic law, or indeed when you think about any law. In theory, the law is uh, directing and shaping behaviour. Whereas what I've seen and what I argue in the book is actually it's the events themselves, the wars that take place and the political peoples that are shaping the law. So there's a constant sense of refining Islamic law or reinterpreting Islamic law in particular ways in response to events as they transpire and take place on the ground. So I think that's quite significant, and 2003 is really important for that because Al-Qaeda is attempting to, first of all, it's buoyed by the fact that it's pulled off 9-11, and it feels like the West isn't invincible, and it's had this ability to pierce the Western defense and security infrastructure. And Then here comes the United States, it's in the region, along with Britain, the traditional enemies, and they are trying to market to the broader Muslim world to say, here are our reasons for fighting them, here's our expression, you should be joining us. And that process of engaging with with the broader Arab world, again, forces them to produce lots of literature. Again, it sparks a big debate, is this valid, is this not, where do you stand? But I think it also helps them crystallize their own thoughts. Um, And so I think, again, intellectually, for the development of this movement, it's a hugely critical time. In fact, I don't think... The notion of Salafi jihadism as a movement or as an idea is completely crystallized or coherent on September the 11th. In some respects, it's a post-9/11 uh, construct. Um, but I, I sort of, I, sh- I, I don't go into that so explicitly in the book because I just thought it was a sideshow, and I was going to maybe make an argument that people would find controversial that detracted from what I'm really trying to say.
1: Yeah, no, it's fair enough. Um, and with the current war in Syria and the rise and potential fall of ISIS now, where
2: is the ideology of Salafi jihadism today? So Syria and Iraq, given the the extent of the crisis today, you would expect them, from everything we've seen, to be uh, sort of leading to a new phase yet again in the development of Salafi thinking. And we're, we're sort of relatively early still in this, in, into this, but you can already notice a few things. I mean again it dawned on me as an afterthought. I gave this book to, to a friend of mine who's a barrister and I and I wanted him to read it as a sort of intelligent uh, non specialist engaged. and he said he said, you know, there's gotta be a lot more Islamic State in this book. Why why is there no Islamic State? And I was like, Oh yeah, you know and then it dawned on me. Actually Islamic State isn't producing reams of material the way Al Qaeda used to. And so when I'm looking for Islamic State's books, when you're looking for the literature, they I mean they're actual in depth theological material there isn't much. There's the odd thing that comes out here and there, but there isn't uh, an advanced or sophisticated book. Whereas, to give you an example, uh, Al-Qaeda Iraq, after 2003, produced a book on human shields, about 50 pages long, explaining their attitude towards human shields and you know, why they could be killed in certain circumstances and uh, classifying them in four different ways and all these kinds of things. So you read something like that from the perspective of a researcher and you're know, great, that's a chapter of the book. You go to Islamic State and there's nothing like that. So they burn a man alive in a cage with the Jordanian pilot Muad al And this is a hugely controversial moment, even for radical jihadists who are like, Whoa, they've overstepped the market. You would expect a booklet. You would expect and they produced one small paragraph essentially saying, Here's why we've done it and then you have to go back and work it out for yourself, uh, and so on. So The point is, I don't see Islamic State as as doing anything that interesting right now from an ideological intellectual point of view whereas Al-Qaeda was always keen to say we are part of a chain of continuity of Islamic thought they were keen to posit themselves within Islamic tradition Um, and again, I I don't make a value judgment whether they achieved that or not I'm just saying here's what they attempted to do so they would go back to important Islamic figures from Islamic antiquity, such as Ibn Taymiyyah they would go back to various things and try and bring them out Uh, to say, here we are in this arc of Islamic thought and development over time. Then, uh, what they do now in Syria and Iraq, I think, is showing that they're still the more interesting movement from an intellectual perspective. So you're seeing what I'm calling a sort of theological pragmatism evolve here, which is that they're implementing a Sharia light, as it were, in in different senses. They are basically saying, you don't need... uh, uh, to to implement the Hadud punishments. These are the sort of famous Islamic punishments mentioned in the scripture, such as chopping the hand of the thief. So they say you can suspend this. And here is a precedent for uh, suspending it from Islamic history. Uh, You can spend in times of calamity or famines, of tumultuous uprisings and so on. And clearly Syria is undergoing a huge humanitarian crisis. So we are going to suspend the rules. So in the areas that they're governing in, they are developing a slightly more pragmatic program for engagement and for outreach. And that's designed to win popular support. And so when I look at it like that, I'm like, wow, they are really onto something here.
1: Mm-hmm. You mentioned, you did mention just now, I mean, like um, Al-Qaeda and ISIS are using different approaches for religious justification and positioning of their actions. Why, Why should we say, is ISIS, I guess, making less of an effort on, on the religious justification?
2: Yeah, it's really hard to know. There's no good answer for it. Um, whether they feel like it's all been said before and therefore they don't need to that could be one uh, thing although we're speculating and the other thing i sometimes think is they believe they've established the caliphate and therefore abu bakr al Baghdadi is the khalif and traditional jurisprudence essentially says the khalif is the executive what he says go all authority resides in him he could have uh, a sort of consultation council known as a shura council and so on around him but it's purely advisory it's essentially up to, provided he adopts from within the corpus of islamic opinion so if he said everyone must stop going to friday prayers and instead get drunk and eat baker sandwiches you'd say okay he's clearly violating uh, islamic law and he says we don't follow him but even if he picks something quite esoteric from within the body of islamic literature uh, and says this is my opinion the That for the sake of the unity of the movement, you would go with him, even if you thought the strong opinions were elsewhere. So, again, Islamic State may be saying, you know what, he's depicting these opinions and we don't need to justify them. He's the executive. We, therefore, uh, uh, simply follow and obey. That could be part of it, but it's not clear. They've never given a reason for why they don't put out a lot of material.
1: And... um one thing I've noticed is, like, um, Salafi Jihadist groups like to push this an idea of a clash of civilizations as the West wants to destroy the Muslim
2: world. Can you talk us through why that's important to them? It's integral to the Salafi Jihadi view, actually, that they regard Islam and the West as being fundamentally incompatible. They say that these things are completely separate, that nothing good can come from anything that's not Islam itself. So that even if you do a positive act by virtue of being a non-Muslim who does it, so you give money to charity, you help an old lady across the street, that kind of thing, because your frame of reference isn't from within Islam itself, or you are motivated by an Islamic principle to do it, then the act acting of itself is meaningless. They're really, uh, in some respects, quite supremacist. Um, they're basically saying, look, nothing matters in the world other than Islam, and Islam is a source of of everything. And therefore... You know, you become uh, 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 engaged in this notion of the the clash of civilizations as being the only way for the world to proceed. Because what they would say is, you know, truth and falsehood have to fight it out, hock and and they they fight it out to see who triumphs uh, in that way. So it's a really integral part of the Salafi-jihadi worldview. It's 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 essentially the underlying cause of their whole mission is to. Establish the authority of Islam politically and to use it as a launch port to a launch pad to Expand continuously across the globe to acquire more territory for the glory of Islam Well, a lot of commentators put a lot of um, weight behind
1: the religious motivation of terrorists But is Islam Islamist terrorism really just
2: um, a way to recruit sort of fighters for a political struggle? The extent to which religious ideas matter to people you uh, see average fighters, so again if we say the guy from Portsmouth, Brighton, Cardiff, Birmingham, wherever, who goes off to join Islamic State, has he sat there and read the the great works of the Salafi-jihadi theorists? Does he know the concept of walā al-barā as they developed? So no, they, they, I, I don't think there is um, a sophisticated understanding. Uh, as part of the work again that I've been doing at ICSR here at Kings, is we've interviewed about a 100 foreign fighters who went off to f- participate in Syria and Iraq using smartphone applications and things like that. And they're all religiously unsophisticated. They're religious novices and so on. That's not uh, so important in the sense of, you know, how does an ideology work? We tend to think of people who get involved in ideological movements or in ideological causes as being uh, or presupposing that they must have read all the key literature and had these quite in-depth considered notions about what It is they're going to, which is all, of course, nonsense. Um, Mass movements that are ideologically driven have people that buy in at the base level for all kinds of reasons, usually with very poor understanding. But it's the the sort of ideological oversight that comes from the leadership that invests their their actions with meaning, that gives their actions direction, and so on. So to give you an example, if I ran out of this building now and stab someone in the street it would be treated as an ordinary criminal act maybe I am trying to mug him maybe there is a dispute that would, but if I do the same act and shout Allahu Akbar and say that I have done it out of loyalty to the Khalif Abu Bakr or Baghdadi exactly same act but by virtue of sins it suddenly become a highly politicized act invested with great ideological significance Um, and that's the way ideologies work that's the way movements work in that they are able to force project in a different way and so uh, the example i often give and it's not my own although it's been attributed to me by by other people which is very kind of them but it's it's not my own i read it somewhere i just can't remember where it's talking about the power of ideas and the history of ideas and it said You know, had every prison guard at Auschwitz read Mein Kampf? Of course they hadn't. Does that mean the ideas contained within Mein Kampf battered? Clearly they did. And that's the same thing I think we have to think about when we look at Salafi jihadis today.
1: Well, you mentioned you've interviewed fighters and things. You've uh, gone from Britain to Iraq and Syria. So what is it that makes a British-born and educated
2: person up sticks and fly off to a war zone? Well, some of the stuff we've already touched upon the you know at the sort of I suppose the broad, abstract level, which is these crises of civilization, uh, sorry of of liberalism, of finding yourself. I think identity plays a huge role in a lot of this. Clearly, some of them, and you know we shouldn't deny this. Clearly, some of them are highly religiously motivated. They believe this is what God wants them to do, what God expects of them, and so off they go. They also believe very strongly in the. The sort of virtues as it were of martyrdom if they were killed out there they'll be martyred and uh, get a shortcut to paradise with all the sort of nirvanas that come with that but really when i'm looking at the sort of the group dynamic of people going there's all sorts of elements that we've seen from world war one world war two masculinity emotional blackmail what will you do uh, when this great struggle for the caliphate was happening Were you sitting at home playing PlayStation? You weren't saving your brothers and sisters. Um, So there was a lot of that. And as I say, there was a sense of like this was like a boyish summer camp. I mean, we saw these guys out there with guns, with weapons, living in these big communal halls, um, saying, you know, why aren't you coming up? We're living better lives than we were living in the West, is what they were saying. And we're with our friends, and we're also noble. Uh, so that 's also quite strong in in many senses, and we saw there was just a lot of it was you know boys being boys in the, in this sort of you must prove your masculinity, and the way you do it is by picking up a klashnikoff in Syria and Iraq. Uh, one of my colleagues has just done in fact two of them have just done a, a big report looking at the the crime terror nexus, and again found a lot of criminals been involved. Uh, in going over or or getting involved in jihadist movements. Again, for them narratives of redemption are quite strong and powerful, saying, you know well, you've lived this bad life, you were a drug dealer you were in a gang or whatever and now, look, here you are your sins are being washed away because you're a mujahid and so on and yet you're still kind of engaged in clandestine, subversive activity, but now you're doing it from the prison of being, someone who at least in some narrative is being held up to be a noble warrior and a good person so there's a, there's a multiplicity of different things going on that we've seen it's interesting you mentioned the criminalist story. it reminds me of
1: the story of morton storm i don't know if you're familiar with that the guy who then uh, infiltrates al-qaeda as a cia and mi5 and many other intelligence mm-hmm. services agents um yeah because he was a biker wasn't he i think thanks so yeah. again
2: morton storm is a good example someone who's you can see if looking at his life he's always been seeking adventure he's always been wanting to be part of something and uh, whether it's being a biker, being a radical Muslim, what he's doing now, there's always been the, the sort of same traits are there, they're just manifesting in different ways. And what methods are these groups using to recruit various individuals to
1: go and fight for them?
2: Well, different narratives, I think, have played out at different moments in time in this conflict. So in the early stages, 2012 and 2013, where people were going, it was very much about come and save your brothers and sisters from oppression, here is a tyrant, you must uh, defeat him, Bashar al-Assad, help the civilians, help the civilians. And so loads of those early people, in fact, as we encountered them, were very much about saving civilian lives, saying we are here to help the people. Then that was the narrative. From sort of mid of 2013 onwards, as ISIS began to consolidate control, uh, uh, particularly over the eastern sides of Syria and Deir and Raqqa and so on, the narrative became more about, you know, establish a caliphate, we're here to establish Islam, we're establishing an Islamic state. And people were then being motivated by that. Um, at other moments, I, this isn't strictly chronological, obviously when, when Hezbollah was openly involved in the conflict and Iranian forces were coming in. Well, the sectarian element as well, like, look, this is a battle for the future direction of Islam. You must come and push back against these Shias who are coming in. And so the Sunni Shia thing became more pronounced and sort of slightly more established. In the narrative, and then finally, of course, when the caliphate itself is announced, that's the final you're obligated now to come and live in it, you should come and be part of this new society. So, everyone who went at different moments was responding to different parts of those narratives, and they were slightly more pronounced at different times. and You can see now the flow of Sunni foreign fighters into this conflict uh, has fallen off by something like 90%, 95%. You know, people aren't going. Uh, and, and that foreign fighter flow seems to have died away. And that's because some of these groups are on the retreat, the narrative isn't as strong for them as it used to be. So the, so the game has changed a little bit in that sense. Yeah, that's very interesting, actually. Because so, obviously there's still this massive fear
1: about sort of these people bringing the training back home and things like that. But I was, I'd not heard that before, that the uh,
2: the, the less Sunnis going out now. That's really interesting. Yeah. Oh, no, it's completely dropped off. You know, for Islamic State to try and attract people now well, what would make you go today that wouldn't have made you go a year ago? So in a sense that those who were going to go, I think, have gone. And that momentum and that ability to project success uh, that ISIS had, capturing new cities and so on, is severely being challenged now. They're on the back foot. They inflict uh, suffering losses. uh, And so that's making them sort of pull back a little bit. So, you know, hang on. uh, it's making people rethink the sort of validity of going out there.
1: Um, a law enforcement contact of mine once described religious extremism as being a bit like a business, like the drug trade. To what extent do you think extremi- extremism is a business, always
2: like a business? Well, I mean, people have drawn all these kinds of links. In as far as you know, it's it's these things are run like cartels, they're run like mafias, and and uh, and so and so. I think there is that sort of sense of that happening. As I say, we we are doing more work, and it's new but we are um, looking more at financial crime and terrorism, and, uh, the, the sort of crime-terror nexus. And you do see the same things uh, applying in that people who are operating in clandestine fashion who are quite comfortable uh, regularly breaking the law, uh, and that's not just you know doing 75 miles an hour on the motorway, but selling drugs or involved in gangs uh, and stuff, then moving into terrorist networks isn't all that difficult for them it's not like they're coming from a completely uh a sort of clean perspective as it were they've already become familiarized with breaking the law and they're quite comfortable with it and i think that's something you you, you sort of notice a bit uh, uh with people involved and of course they have skills that are that are valuable so if you look at the november attacks for example uh in paris last year then um there was clear overlap with criminal networks and you need the criminal networks because you and i as ordinary law-abiding citizens don't know how to get our hands on ak-47s on the streets of paris but clearly so there are people out there who do know how to do this and that's what makes it relevant and important
1: and um one other thing comes up a lot when we talk about terrorism and um Salafi jihadism, a lot of commentators like to point the finger at Saudi Arabia or private donors in the Gulf state for bankrolling the
2: development of Salafi jihadism. Is there any truth to this from what you've seen from your research? Well, I'd say I'm not the primary expert on this, but let's be clear. The idea that ISIS is funded by any state, whether it's the Saudis, Qataris, Turkeys, is nonsense. ISIS is as much, if not more, of an existential threat to them than it is uh, even to the West. And it wants to target those countries more than it does the West. So you've seen a number of ISIS suicide bombers in Saudi Arabia, for example. Turkey's had more ISIS attacks than anybody else. So these are clearly, um, uh, uh, this is a nonsense. The broader thing, however, is that the Gulf states and people around the world in general do fund Salafi projects. And the firewall between Salafi jihadism and quieter side of is not always as well established or developed as it should be. So there's clear uh, evidence I think of cases where things spill over, where things inadvertently go this way. So is it strictly true to say that that they fund it? Well yes and no. I don't think there's a, a sort of conscious thought out plan but definitely uh, the money flows and again. Qatar, Saudi Arabia, and and Turkey in particular, are not going to let the other parts of the Syrian opposition go down. Groups like Ahrar al-Sham, for example, who are still highly Salafi, who are still highly conservative in their views, and who are jihadis, but are operating with just a slightly different agenda insofar as I would describe as being Islamo-nationalist in orientation. So they want to take over Syria, and that's essentially, at least for now, the scope of their ambition. Whereas a group like Islamic State, of course, wants to be New York, London, Paris, Rome.
1: Um, So we've seen a lot of members of the far right who are trying to equate all Muslims with terrorism. And we've seen members of the far left sharing platforms and apologizing for terrorists and extremists. And it's led to a lot of confusion on the topic. And it's causing an increasingly toxic atmosphere for Muslims and non-Muslims who want to bring the violence to an end in your opinion what are muslims and non-muslims getting wrong about islam and counter terrorism
2: well i think as as you say actually, there's a sense in the public debate to go one or two ways at a polarized levels one is to say this is nothing to do with islam these guys are all psychopaths and they're just crazy people and uh, so and look I, you know i understand why people say that it's born of sincerity um, but it's also nonsense and it doesn't help muslims and it doesn't help the debate um, because what it does is it fuels grievance narratives on the other side. People saying, oh, you're covering up for them. You know, it's helping. It's not helping Muslim liberals who are trying to counteract some of this because they're being told, well, look, Islam, there's no problem here, right? And, and there's no issue. And then on the flip side, of course, all Muslims are terrorists and you never know when your Muslim neighbor might strap on a suicide bomb and blow up the northern line. Well, that's also just nonsense. So the debate is very, very difficult. Um, and... and I think, particularly in the public arena, it, it's sort of uh, you do have to despair sometimes at, at the way it stands. But well, you know, what do people get wrong? I think people just don't understand. I mean, you know, say, so, "Well, look, it says this in the Quran," it's like, and so what? This idea that there's one Islam or that you take a verse from the Quran at face value, literally, and then go and implement it is also just a nonsense. It's not how I understand Islam. Islam. most Muslims understand Islam. Nor have thousands of years of Islamic scholarship said that's how you do it. You know. Muslims believe the Qur'an was revealed piecemeal in relation to circumstances and events over a number of years and so when you're looking at a particular verse you have to look at the context in which it comes, you have to look at the situation you have to look at what constricts that verse and what doesn't make, what makes it general, what doesn't and all these sorts of different things that would uh, allow Muslims to, to sort of extrapolate rulings and understandings so in the public debate on a lot of this I just kind of despair at all levels, when I see from Anjum Chowdhury to Tommy Robinson to, to various people who are engaged in this and I think are coming at it in a sensationalist way. So I said, is there a problem? Yes. Is it as bad as you know, everyone's making out? Well, we need to work out how to, to challenge it and fix it. But, you know, uh, and that, that requires like a, a greater, sort of more responsible debate from the wider community. But we also need more Muslims to be coming at this issue and to challenging it uh, uh, without being defensive and uh, again i feel like slowly but surely these things are happening but you know, it's going to take a long time
1: yeah are there any um good places uh for listeners to sort of read more should we say balanced articles stories because i find the new um a lot of uh the news and things like that tends to be very sensationalist in it's reporting i think it becomes very difficult for listeners to sort of find quality information about this topic
2: it is very difficult to find quality information. I think, you know, there are there are more and more books now looking at this kind of issue um, and stuff. So there was a book uh, that's come out, you look at the life of Abdul Wahab. I think that's very good. In terms of you want to understand the basis of the contemporary Saudi state, of how most Salafis view their religion. These are These are good things. I mean... Traditionally, academics have not worked on this kind of stuff, but it's changing. That the, even the academic landscape is changing, and I think that's important. So that I notice now, this book. This book's been a long time in the making. It's you know, more than six years. Um, where the debate was when, when the book started, and where the debate is now, and not it's a result of the book. Says so the book has been a product of the environment in which it was conceived as well. Which is that there is more nuance, there is more intelligent commentary that is emerging, rather than this you know, God, these guys with beards want to kill us all. Um, so I, I would recommend your readers to, to, to definitely take to Amazon, basically, and then to look to some of the more authoritative scholarly works on this issue that are positing and explaining what's happening in a more intelligent uh, uh, light. And a lot of French academics look at the situation in Europe, Olivier Roy, Gilles Capel and, and uh, Jean-Pierre Fillier, and so on. And I think they doing some very good work on, on the situation in Europe as it stands. same with Peter Nessa from, from Oslo. Again, very good book on the situation in Europe and how that stands. Uh, so I think that's a good starting point for people. From what
1: you've seen research in this topic, what is being done and what can be done to counter the Salafi jihadist narrative from gaining popularity?
2: Well, Salafi jihadism, ideas in general, and when you look at ideas uh, uh, and ideologies in general, they are still, like everything else, they rely on the political environment. They need context, momentum, and, and, and success behind them in order to drive them forward. So you almost, as it were, needed the Soviet Union to fail, for, to suck a lot of momentum out of communism. But there are still communists today, but they're, they're not as many as there were two, three decades ago. And it's the same thing here that Salafi jihadism is a uh, uh, problematic a manifestation of of Islamic belief that some people have chosen to construct and buy into. It does need to be militarily defeated, as it is being uh, in Syria and Iraq. It needs a, a general change in the political uh, settlement of the Middle East for the better, so that people aren't turning to these things. You can legitimately, as a citizen of Egypt, Syria, Iraq, Saudi, Qatar, vote out your government or whatever it is, uh, take your elected uh, leaders and hold them to account in a way that doesn't require you to be doing this. So all of that's the longer-term structural stuff. Theologically and ideologi- uh, ideologically, this this battle for Islam and the, the soul of Islam is taking place. You know We are living through it. And that's, again, kind of what, one of the things I'm showing in the book, is a huge debates within Islam, within Salafism as well, uh, for authenticity, uh, um, and understanding over particular ideas so as that continues and that will continue you know these ideas will evolve movements will fall and die I don't think this will last forever but um, it's certainly around and whilst it won't last forever I dare say all of us won't be alive to see the end of it it'll last for a while
1: it will go beyond us <laughs> yeah
2: unfortunately yeah
1: Um. Quick bonus question um, half embarrassed about it, but um, in a similar vein to the class of um, sorry in a similar vein to the clash of civilizations narrative, I have seen an increasing popularity in conspiracy theories about who actually runs al qaeda isis and i 've been told by some well meaning Muslim friends of mine that really all the violence in the Middle East is some part of an elaborate plan run by the West to divide Muslims in the middle east what do you th- Why do you think these type of theories are gaining traction or have gained traction?
2: Yeah, God, the conspiracy (laughs) theory in the Muslim world stuff. I mean, I, you know, I encounter when I go to Pakistan, it's so, so well entrenched, but it's not unique uh, to Pakistan. I think there's a sense of two or three things. I mean, one is they can't make sense of all of this or the idea that Muslims are doing this to other Muslims. So this sense, it must be coming from outside, it must be directed, because... You know, we all really like each other deep down. It's so like, are, are you kidding me? But there's that sense of, you know, oh, this is all being driven to, to make us fight each other, to kill each other, and uh, uh, to keep us sort of divided. Um, it, it's, it's a real problem because it, it's denying the reality. You know, but people also need conspiracy because it, it's, it basically gives order and structure and sense to a world that doesn't make any sense and doesn't have order or structure So, when you need that, uh, you need the answers. And so, uh, sometimes this fits in with the pattern of of thinking that, okay, there's got to be a grand plan here because we should be doing better than we are, and we're not. Someone's directing it. It's malignant, it's coming from the West, it's coming from outside. But, um, you know, I would say to them this idea that there's some grand strategy that's being hatched in the Pentagon or in the Foreign Office. And literally, it's been played out in Syria and Iraq as if there's some overlords playing a game of chess. You should go meet these civil servants. They don't have a clue what's going on. The idea that the FCO can coherently run a disaster in Syria is is nonsense. They're no more able to put that together than they are to put something successful. So, you know, it uh, it's always makes me laugh because I'm like, these are ordinary civil servants who are as confused, who are as scared, and as perplexed about everything that's happening as you are. Um, yeah, they, they, it's it's just one of those particular pathologies right now that's going around. Yeah, especially with the rises of, sort of internet culture and things like that. Exactly, yeah. you can find your own echo chambers where everyone supports your view, and uh, and so on. In fact, you know, some people done some interesting work. David Ronovich has done a good book on, on conspiracy theories, and, and um, some other people have done so, some work on that too. there's some interesting things around, there, like your your lack of trust in your own government. Uh, is one of the things... So the more distrustful you are, the more likely you are to believe in conspiracy theories. Um, Problem in the region being, of course, that sometimes it's the governments themselves that are pushing these conspiracy theories. So Saad's narrative is this is all happening by the West to overthrow him uh, and stuff. So you're you're literally within layers upon layers of smoke and mirrors and it's hard to see the wood for the trees. Yeah, I suppose it's very useful for something like Assad because it helps shift the blame away from him, doesn't it? Yeah.
1: exactly (laughs) well thank you so much Um, where can listeners find out more
2: about you and your work so um, if you go to the website of ICSR it's ICSR.info that's specifically our research centre's website which is part of the War Studies Department at King's College London so they definitely learn more about the work there Uh, I'm on Twitter as well it's just my full name Shiraz Meher you can uh, uh, see my random musings there often about Syria sometimes about cricket um Mm -hmm. And, uh, uh, yeah, apart from that, it's, uh, it's the book on Amazon. And, uh, and then those, I suppose, are the three places I'm probably most present. Excellent. Thank you
1: again very much for joining me today. Thanks for doing Thank that. Thank you. Please. If you've enjoyed the show, please spread the word by connecting with us on Twitter by going to at drycleanercast. For more information about the podcast, please visit our website, www.drycleanercast.co.uk
0: Thank you for listening to the Dry Cleaner Cast.